HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hey everyone, and welcome to Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Joe Salonia. On today's episode, we have Sean Hartwig, who's the Specialty Foods Manager at Zingerman's Delicatessen in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Like many of Zingerman's deli staff members, Sean grew up in a family who loved to cook and showed love through food. Sean says food was the basis of his family, get-togethers, and holds a special place in his childhood memories. He started his career at Zingerman's Deli in the late 90s after working in Grand Rapids kitchen scene during high school. And after taking time away to study, travel, and manage the specialty store Morgan & York in Ann Arbor, Sean returned to Zingerman's in 2011, where he has been there ever since. While Sean's specialty is cheese, he loves to learn, serve, and cultivate a positive community around food. While not in a deli, you might find Sean cycling around Ann Arbor or leading a group of intrepid travelers on Zingerman's food tours. Sean, welcome to Cutting the Curd. Joe, thank you so much. What an honor. First time caller, long time listener. Right on. I love that. Um, so it's so great to have you with us here. You're a wealth of knowledge, but I want to get right into it. Uh, but first, a basic thing. Um, how would you describe Zingerman's to someone who is new to the business and does not know who or what Zingerman's Deli is in the cheese world? Got it. So I'll give my my uh, 10 cent speech here. Zingerman's Deli was started and founded by Ari Weinswig and Paul Saginaw, two gentlemen that uh, went to university, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and worked in kitchens and wanted to to bring traditional deli food where they grew up. Paul outside of Detroit and Ari outside of Chicago to Ann Arbor at that time in the early 80s. Uh, the Midwest, much like many other uh, cities in the area, were Germanic and Greek. That, that Those were the food options you had. So traditional Jewish deli food was not present. Uh, and they had the opportunity 
to buy a beautiful two-story brick building in what is now the historic district of Carytown in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, and they brought it to life. And so from March 15th, 1982, we'll have our 41st birthday here in a, a week or so. Uh, we have grown into an organization that has a dozen or so unique individual businesses that work together in collaboration to provide amazing food. The deli is the original business, and I'm lucky enough to, uh, to manage the specialty food side of that, and specifically the cheese. Right on. So the deli is still, would you say, is it fair to say that the deli is still like the heartbeat and the core of the foundation of the identity and vibe of visiting Zingerman's? Yeah. Yeah, I would say that. I think the deli uh, is, uh, you know, a thriving enterprise. We have three different areas of the deli that the guests come through, whether they're first time guests our, our neighbors down the road. We have our specialty foods area when you walk in the front of the deli. Uh, and the heartbeat of the deli itself is sandwiches. That's what Ari and Paul wanted, was traditional Jewish sandwiches and food. Uh, and then we have a catering division. And I, and I, I guess that's kind of what I meant. When I, when I think of the deli, I'm thinking of those sandwiches and those, those foods that you mentioned in the beginning that Ari and Paul brought there. So that is the, is the foundation through which all the businesses and, and themes throughout the Zingerman's network stands upon, is it fair to say? And then at some point they la- they launched a cheese program. It is, it is. Uh, our, the, the, the foundations, the tenets of Zingerman's uh, is corned beef and, and the, the, the classic Reuben. Uh, and to that, as the business grew and became more successful with hard work and a little bit of luck, in the mid eighties, uh, we had the opportunity to expand the footprint of the deli and to incorporate more dry goods and sellable items that people could take home above and beyond sandwiches. And so that's where Ari and Paul developed their roles. Paul stayed with the kitchen, uh, in the sandwich side of things. And Ari was able to expand into learning about cheeses, meats, olive oils, etc. Right on. And I love all that. And then, so now, how would you, how many cheeses does Zingerman's carry at any given time? I love that question. I went and counted just to get ready for a question like that. Uh, right now, currently, we have 142 cheeses. Uh, and it, we could have anywhere from 125 to 170, depending on the time of year uh, and, and the mix. And so, so cheeses tend to add up fast. And you're, you're counting like cheese spreads. You're counting mozzarella, burrata, all the categories. That's up under perishables. I'm going to guess, right? Under all the perishable, highly perishable. Some, some has a longer shelf life, shorter shelf life. But at, at any given time, one 125 yeah. to 170 is your range. And, and does that number does it does the number go up higher during the winter holiday season or does it tend to be a different time of year? That's a good question. So we we're at a university town with the University of Michigan right around the corner here in Ann Arbor. So we have big spikes around graduation, around football season, the holidays, whether they be Jewish or, or Christian. Uh, Thanksgiving to anyone who works in retail from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Uh, it's like three months worth of sales, and so our volume tends to expand during those times, and then contract in the slower months, January and February. 
So as popular as, as Zingerman's is, and with all those beautiful things happening that help drive your business throughout the year, it, it must, is it tempting to just keep adding more, but you practice some restraint and, and, and is there a, a strategy behind that? Because I'm going to guess if you could, in theory, carry more, you could carry less. How, how do you find the right amount? I think this is a, probably everybody's gut check question. You can't just carry everything you love all the time, or maybe you're getting requests and, and you, you could add more or having the right it's balance, I guess, is everything. Yeah. It's wonderful to think that we could carry everything, wouldn't it? It'd be amazing. Um, so I'm, I'm constricted in some ways physically with the capacity of the counter. I think it's important for everyone out there to understand that Zingerman's Deli is still a cut-to-order cheese shop. So we bring in whole wheels uh, outside of spreads and grab-and-go items, and we cut to order. So I only have so much counter space that's non-refrigerated and so much that's refrigerated. And so a lot of my capacity, holding capacity for cheeses is based around how many square feet we have and then how how fast we want to turn those cheeses. So whether it be a soft cheese, I'd love to have them here for less than 30 days. We don't do any affinage. Uh, it's like the, the highest end hospice for dairy you can find. We want to, we want to take the... We want to take the intentions of the cheesemakers and dairy men and women, and we want to convey that to the guests and, and get out of the way of that, that interaction in some ways. And so aged cheeses tend to be on our counter or in our uh, coolers for no more than 60 days. So we have high turns, not a lot of holding capacity, uh, and that, that really dictates the volume, the overall volume and number of cheeses I can sell. And do you aim for whole wheels when possible, um, you know, within reason? Uh, I remember in 2014, 15, right around there, you were the first one to really share time with me and show me how to cut my first wheel of Emmental or AOP, um, which was so awesome of you. And I'm guessing you're, over the years, you've taught many cheesemongers how to crack their first parm wheel or wire a big wheel of Comte, Gruyere, Emmental, or other big wheels. So this, is that a pretty common occurrence? And how many mongers do you think you've taught over the years? It must, have been, it must be a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we, we'll, I'll go back to your first question, which is we, we, we try to bring in whole wheels um, exclusively. And that's just because the, the quality um, is never going to be better than when you first open that wheel. And that's really important for mongers, uh, whether they be new to the – the cheese scene or mongers that have been around forever, that, that first taste of a, a freshly cracked wheel is inspiring. Uh, and I think that's what conveys the value of these, these products that aren't cheap in our, in our world. Um, I am one of a long line of amazing cheese buyers at the deli. I mean, if you go all the way back, you have people like Deborah Dickerson. You mm -hmm. have... David Lockwood, Carlos Souffrant. We have people that uh, have really set the stage for some. Matt Morgan set the stage for some amazing um, cheese care uh, and passed on a torch that that I carry um, with pride to continue a cut-to-order cheese program. Yeah, you're, you're, the Zingerman's counter has been kind of a like Ivy League of cheese school for folks that are interested in the cheese business to to work and learn and then go on to great things and i 
have to wonder why, why is this so? And one of the things, uh, you know, that I'm, fi- that I find as I, as I get to meet, uh, like I, I know Deborah really well. Uh, I've met Carlos and I, I know Carlos a little bit. And one, one thing that seems to be, uh, within them is this servant leadership. And of course, Ari, obviously, um, when you meet them, uh, you, you feel servant leadership is, is a B is a big, um, um, tenant and, and philosophy of, of Zingerman. So can you explain how, if, if that's one of the cornerstones and how you implement yeah. this philosophy into day-to-day business? I'm happy to speak to servant leadership, but I also want to go back. Just we really have a unique situation here in Ann Arbor where no one uh, that comes and works in with our cheeses and with our specialty foods department studied cheese, dairy science, etc. I mean, people come from all different backgrounds, some from the university side, some from being a townie. Um, but I think everyone out there that works with cheese understands that the value of learning and growing and sharing something so authentic as, as being able to, to sell and taste cheese. Uh, it's, a, it's a really, I think, humble way uh, and meaningful way to work. Um, as far as servant leadership goes, uh, we've, we've done a lot of consulting over the years to be better, whether it be from uh, a service side or a financial side or a food side. And one of the ways in which Ari and Paul gave us a lot of gifts was being willing to consult and learn from other people. One of those being Robert Greenleaf, who many people know uh, who developed through essays in the 70s these, this idea of servant leadership towards peers and individuals, but also uh, in following essays, servant leadership for organizations and businesses. And, and the idea is uh, we are at our best and we are doing our best work and most elevated work when we are caring for each other and working for each other towards a greater unified goal. I love that. I love that. Yeah. We need more of that in this world. So does this, does this help you attract more cheese team members in general, do you think? That's a good question. I, I don't think it attract. I don't think pe- – well, people want to understand what is Zingerman's. I want to work for Zingerman's. Um, and I don't know – obviously, when you come from the outside and you're getting a job, you'll say anything to get a job. But people that really want to learn about our culture and our values and how we work together um, tend to come away uh, doing better things, going better places in their lives and utilizing a lot of the concepts we use professionally in their personal lives. And that's that's a testament to the work. So maybe it helps them stick around longer and they feel like they're actually I mean, the vibe I get with the people that worked at Zingerman's is they felt like it like enriched their lives. Like they grew as people along with learning about cheese. And I think I just think to myself, how wonderful would it is it to have a job like that? That's really, I think, all of our goals is to work and learn, enjoy, grow. And then on top of it, maybe have, you know, get this servant leadership mindset um, kind of in your bones a little bit. Do you think that at does that increase when folks come on board? They actually discover, oh, hey, this place is special. It's not just I wish I, for me. I wish I could capture the essence of uh, of what what makes people want to stay with us. Um, we're really lucky. We have a lot. We have low turnover uh, in our world. We have really amazing retention, 
And for a, a retail environment in a university town, that's unheard of. And so what I found um, as, I, as I witnessed these cohorts of staff come through is they form really meaningful bonds inside and outside of work. It's not necessary. We don't all have to be friends. We just have to, to work for the same goals professionally. But many times these, these groups form these bonds that last for, for years and years, if not a lifetime. It's, uh, it's amazing to witness. Wow. That's really, that's really unique. I'm sure everybody would love to know the secret sauce um, of how to have low turnover at a job. Um, but it's probably something simple, but like, like the things you've outlined, but easier said than done. You need, the, you need everybody um, on board. And I, that's what you guys seem to have. Now, the trend lately, I mean, if you talk to any store, just because of the pandemic and maybe other conditions, it's that the trend is that there's less retention. It's becoming less and less. Um, it's, a, um, it seems there's more movement or every now and then there'll just be, uh, or, you know, sometimes notice in the industry, there's like a shedding and then lots of people are moving around at once. And then, but that seems to be happening in, uh, closer successions. Do you, do you feel it at the counter that there is less, um, it is, they stay a little less since the pandemic or do you feel like it's, it's almost the same or, or, or is, are they staying longer, uh, since the pandemic? Well, we don't have enough information post-pandemic. We have a, a, a you know almost two years under our belt to really th- see some some data. But what I what I have found is businesses, even businesses like Zingerman's, um, that work with a lot of empathy and care in their actions, um, had a lot of turnover before the pandemic. Working conditions weren't great. Pay wasn't exceptional. Benefits didn't allow people to to thrive employees to thrive. And so I think coming out of the pandemic for the deli itself, our hours changed, our systems changed, the tools we use have changed. Uh, and I think that, that group of, of events that all happened and coalesced around the pandemic has made for a, a really beneficial work environment. Mm. Well, that, that, you mentioned some things there. So could you give our listeners an example of uh, one or two examples of how either systems or hours have, have changed. Yeah. And when you say hours, you mean working hours or store hours or both? Both, both. So okay. uh, I manage the deli specialty foods. That's about 20 full-time staff. We don't have many part-time staff in our group. So we're really lucky in that regard. Before the pandemic, the deli was open from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. So you're in essence two shift work. So for a scheduler or a hiring manager, you're contending with that amount of labor and those inputs. Uh, and after the pandemic, we now open the deli at 11 a.m. and close at 7 p.m. And so it's changed what was five day a work, five day a week work for our staff pre-pandemic to four longer days and three days off. And that so, it's really beneficial to home life. Let me hear that again. So it, when you before the pandemic hours were what time to what time? 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. Wow. And staff would work an average of five days a week. And so Six you might work days. an opening shift or you might work a closing shift, 2 to 10 or 6.30 yeah. to 2.30. Uh, and now people come in at 10 and they leave just after 7. Uh, and it's just a different type of work. Yeah. That's a big shift right there you mentioned. Yeah, it's huge. That's, uh, I mean, if I was working there, I, I, I probably would be, have been pleased to hear the change. That's, that's actually what you can imagine, uh, a, a less intense uh, 
schedule to, to yeah. manage. And then how about system wise? How, what kind of changes are we talking about? So the Delhi, we are slow adopters of technology to say the least. Uh, we, we still take right orders over the phone, uh, with pen and paper. Okay. And, uh, and so the pandemic forced our hand, we had to get online and get into e-commerce, uh, very quickly. All our businesses, uh, outside of mail order, who's been doing it amazingly for years, um, did the same thing. And then we used different platforms and we learned from each other. Um, and so what we did is we had one, software system for e-commerce that the sandwich line used for restaurant items and our catering team used a, a second one and specialty foods we we went with square um and so we had three different e-commerce platforms that didn't speak to the uh the in-house pos if you can believe that it made it challenging but we learned a lot from that process so we had both online and in-house sales the belated glimpse of the obvious is it's much easier to process an online order, both from a, a staffing standpoint and an efficiency standpoint. I mean, people are buying food from you when you're sleeping, and you can fill that order in a timely fashion, much different in a different way than if a guest is walking through your your business and ordering from from your staff. It's quite a different pathway to getting the product in their hand, isn't it? It's completely a whole different. Yeah. The equation. So getting back to employees, um, have, I'm going to guess you had a, any new hires in the last, I don't know, a few months. And what do you tell those people uh, or in the, in the last year? What, what would you what do you tell someone starting who it's who's it's their first day? What do you what do you say to someone? So as far as our, our hiring, we have not hired since last year. Knock on wood. Um, oh, you're not kidding. We've been, okay. we've been really lucky, really lucky. And as far as the first day goes, it's like, I mean, anyone who's worked uh, on a cheese counter or in a, a food shop, it's, it's potentially like drinking from a fire hose. And the, the deli is no <laughs> different. We, we yeah. try to, to do our darndest to, to prepare people for what's important. Um, they do a lot of test tasting. They do a lot of analysis. We talk about how to evaluate foods professionally versus personally. Um, and we also lower the bar. Uh, you know, you walk through, Joe, you walk into the deli and you see someone, it's their first day. You assume they know everything about those 142 cheeses, how to use them and what, what beverages go well with them. And the truth is we want our staff to be really honest, especially in their first months, um, if not year, to be really truthful with our guest and to not BS them and say, hey, I have no idea, but I'm really looking forward to finding out with you. And sharing that, sharing that knowledge and that journey, and that's that for that. us is growth. That is a great line. It's just I love the authenticity of that. So, the rule of engagement for your guests and customers who visit your shop, um, it can vary from monger to monger. But you're encouraging them to be brutally honest and almost really just just be natural. So you're you're setting them up for being uh, comfortable in themselves. So you're creating a, an environment that sounds. Kind of warm and fuzzy. I'm gonna. I'm gonna imagine. Um, and many, many people have said that about Zingerman's warm. So, yeah, the, the the simplest recipes tend to be the easiest to follow, like a service recipe or a system. And so, our our definition of giving great service, um, whether it be to the food or to each other, is very simple. You find out what the guest wants, you get it for him, and you go the extra mile. 
And so in this case, if you're a day one employee, you can easily find out what a guest wants. Clearly, you have no idea how to get it for them. But you can engage and feel comfortable in that process and then bring one of our fellow staff members in to help and to teach yeah. and to coach. The team is there for you and you, and you have a, you have a, a, a built a built like family like confident team with very little turnover. So, yeah, the knowledge is in the room, I'm guessing, at any given day. You're not they're not going to be lost looking around. Um, and isn't Zingerman's very famous for sampling almost like anything in the store is that is that did i hear that right i mean when i was there you were ready to open up any bottle that might not even have been opened at that moment for me to taste something like as far as the condiments or vinegars is that something that you still do post pandemic or how do you handle that we do we do we, obviously with online commerce uh there's less in-store sampling in that respect um but there's nothing in the deli that people need to survive um, whether it be a piece of cheese or a Reuben or a bottle of olive oil. Those, those are not the essential components of a basket of goods when you go to the grocery store. Well, they are for me, but not for, for many people. I'm lucky in that respect. So when people walk through our door, it's really important that they feel comfortable and we lower the bar to what is specialty foods now, which really are just traditional foods, fermented foods in many ways, ways to keep protein and fat from going rancid. Uh, and we convey that through uh, sampling. That can be the guest asking us for a sample, or if we're on our game and we're doing our best, it's like, hey, I just tasted this amazing cheese. You should taste it too. And that, that sets the tone for the experience that people have with us, where it lowers the threshold of anxiety potentially that a guest could come in with, feeling like they, they don't understand what we do but they want to be a part of it. Uh, and usually, whether it leads to a sale or not, it will lead to, to goodwill and, and word of mouth, which is how we get our, a lot of our clients back and guests back. So there's not necessarily upselling, per se, in the, in the conventional sense, but they're just like you're just sharing. Like if someone's asking for a sample of something, it's you might go ahead and pass it to a couple more people. Or if a cheesemonger's tasting something, you might, without being prompted, go ahead and just hand it to a, a guest in the store? Is it that it's a kind of the move? Um, and, and, is it intimidating to people? Do you find that people are many gourmands walking in or you have all levels? I'm going to guess you have like uh, someone like my uncle Louis in the shop. Who's basically life revolves around sharp provolone. And uh, you, might, <laughs> you know, like everything, that's is, all right. you know, and that's fine. They're totally. Yeah. I mean, we, we need uncle Louis and sometimes uncle Louis is bringing his, uh, the cousin I might, you know, is, is his son or daughter and they're, yeah, they're yeah. the ones in, in, into the fancy tuna or the fancy olive oil, right? We get them all. We get them all. And so we used to post pandemic. So we have within specialty foods, three areas. We have the perishables counter that cut to order meat and cheese counter. We have an area where we sell our bread and package goods that are made by one of our sister businesses, our bakehouse that get delivered to the deli four times a day. And then we have that essential pantry and larder area we call dry goods. And so we, we train our staff in all those areas over time. And that allows them to take their guests from one counter to the other without pointing or, or telling someone else to help out and break that, that relationship that you form with the guest uh, and to fill up any basket of goods that people want. So upselling really comes from 
a the staff being really enthusiastic about food and knowing what to, how to how to use our products so that they can convey a recipe or a process or something that would go amazing with it. Uh, but also finding out where the, the the customers at do they do they want to spend an hour with us or are they coming from the hospital down the road and they need to grab something and get out. Right. Reading the customer and, and understanding what they're looking for. I want to dive more into those other those other departments besides the cheese counter at the deli. Um, but first, I just want to take a, a break for our sponsor and we're going to we'll be right back. Uh, and then I want to dive into more of those topics. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back, everyone. We're here chatting with Sean Hartwick from Zingerman's Deli on Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Sean, we were talking about some of the fancier items, the the, the grocery and the uh, items in the other categories. Maybe we're getting into tin fish. We're alluding to some of those things and jams and cheese accompaniments. And uh, before we actually get into my questions with you, I, I just wanted to – I wanted to um, – talk pricing strategy or just price in general, because sometimes those items which can seem common in a store like a Zingerman's will give someone who's never been to a, a fancy or, or a higher end specialty store, um, you know, they're, they're discovering what what the price of goods can, can cost to deliver such an amazing product. But to give it context, I, I, I sometimes do my own price matching at the big grocery store. We're talking, I could be at my, at the at the Target. I happen to live almost next to a Target store here in New Jersey. And I found some fun stats on some familiar snacks. And I broke them out in a price per pound. Uh, and, it, you know, just to kind of give context. Now, this isn't airport or movie theater prices. These are the grocery aisle at the checkout counter at a common grocery store. Okay, I'm going to throw a few at you. I just want to hear what you think. So, Pirate Booty. My favorite cheesy snack, by the way. I, I love Pirate Booty. A four-ounce bag, if you extend the cost, is $28.99. Amazing. Uh, per pound. Four-ounce bag, $28.99 per pound. Thank you for clarifying. Yes, if you break it out and you extend it per pound. Tic Tacs. Tic Tacs. $27.99 per pound. By the way, Tic Tacs were invented in 1969. And they're sold in 100 countries. This is not a paid advertisement for Tic Tacs, by the way. Um, a pack of gum. You know, you, yeah, I, I like drinking. I like uh, eating the uh, the Orbit. Orbit, twenty six bucks a pound. If you're buying one pack at a time, it comes out to twenty six bucks a pound. Uh, Kit Kats, my favorite chocolate candy, at the checkout counter, twenty one ninety nine per pound. 
And a friendly reminder, your iPhone or Google phone is probably about $1,100. So. By weight. <laughs> but, but yeah, by weight. Per pound. <laughs> per, per, yeah, per unit. Uh, that's the each. So. You know, I, I often find it funny how f- some folks will, will will be like, "What? How much is that?" Like when 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 they find out the price of a cheese, but meanwhile they don't think twice about a pack of gum, pirate booty, Tic Tacs, Kit Kats. Um, so it's just like a perception or an expectation. Um, yeah, do you yeah. find any? Do you find any like barriers to price acceptance in the store much, or is it because the magic of Zingerman's kind of gets people in a different headspace? How does it work for you? No, I I think. Yeah. Anyone in their right mind that walks in and sees a $600 bottle of balsamic vinegar that's a couple ounces should should have some reaction. That may be awe, it may be horror, it may be amazement, it may be I want three, all of which are okay. Our, our job is to, you know, we, we buy our products across the board. Ari really set up a, a, a paradigm for us where we buy our food products on a, a basis of traditionally made and full flavored price isn't one of those considerations. And so when you're buying products and your, your only criteria is that it's traditionally made and full flavored, then the, the price is a byproduct of that. And you can convey the, the cost of something to a guest. They may not want to consume it or to buy it. They may not see the value in it. But we can, as, as salespeople and employees, convey the value of that. Now, that said, it gets to be a little bit like an echo chamber. We live in, in shop and eat in the deli, and it's not a cheap place to be. And I think having that perspective of going out and visiting other shops, talking to other mongers, price comparisons are really valuable exercises for all retailers. So we have a sense of of market, so to speak, and in geographical areas can impact that and, 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 and the, the path that a cheese can take from wherever it's place of origin to your counter. Do you, how do you administer cheese price? Do you do by the pound or are you doing half pound or quarter pound? Have you ever done or changed that format? It, I'm always fascinated how in our industry we're charging by the pound and you know, like the way we're like the way we buy whole chicken or ground meat, we, yeah, yeah. but, but, but we have to divide versus multiply. And I, I hate division. So I'd rather, you know, rather it be a different way, but we're, it seems like we're stuck at most counters by putting a full by the pound price. So how do you guys do it? We've, we've oscillated between strictly whole pound and each cost on our signage to uh, showcasing both the half pound and the whole pound pricing or the half and and each. Um, And the reason we did that initially was to test it, to see if it had an effect on average, our, our cheese sales were anywhere from a third, you know, to four tenths of a pound. And so showing someone the price per pound in a, in a high energy retailing environment like Zingerman's deli, may lead to frustration on their part. Uh, and so we do our darndest not to obfuscate the cost of things. You know, the name, the primary message, and the price are all very big on our signs for a reason. We don't want to feel like we're pulling something over on people. Uh, and that's part of the reason we provide samples. 
I, I also heard from more than one shop that when they did the quarter pound price to kind of make the make the price look less, that everybody was fine, but they just ordered a quarter pound all day long. I'll take a quarter pound of that. I'll take a quarter pound of that. I'll take a quarter pound of that all day long. Oh, that's they never sold more than a quarter of a pound. So yeah. that ruined the, a chance for just cutting about, you know, hey, how does this piece look? Big enough for it? Yeah, I'll take that. And then it's it weighs what it weighs, right? Yeah, it's interesting. Those those modifiers you can play around with online a little easier, you know, with drop down menus and, and given optionality to people who are shopping online. But you also then influence the choices by by providing those options. So I think it, it's fun to experiment. Right on. Experimentation is good, but you're but you're back to the pound, which which I I, I totally get. Um, and I guess it's where we're comfortable. It, it's our it's our frame of reference. Um, just changing topics here. Uh, speaking of uh, just uh, some news that I read this week um, about the uh, the word milk being defended by the U.S. Dairy Farmers and National Milk Producers Federation introducing a national bill, um, the Dairy Pride Act, and two. In, uh, it'll be this year, 2023. Do you get requests for much for many non-dairy cheeses, or do you carry any, or plan to carry any? Um, it's a controversial topic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this there's word a lot, milk. There's a lot wrapped up in it. Yeah, it, it, I mean, the, by the way, for for the listeners who maybe need to hear a little bit more, I just stated a headline, but the word milk is under, you know, usage. Uh, attack, so to speak, uh, meaning the dairy farmers only want to have use of the word milk and the nut uh, milk whole branch, whether or milk substitute, as we know it, uh, wants to continue to use the word. So the soy milk, the almond milk, the cashew milk, and so on, it, it's, it's, they want to have control or they, they want to force them to not use the word milk. It's just incredible. Yeah. Like this is there's such a word that you think is so basic. Um, but, but I found words are really powerful. Words, I mean, they're, they're, names, yeah, yeah. How how we how we use them. I think we have guests. Well, I know we have guests that come in uh, all the time looking for substitutes uh, and derivations, and it's not something we do, and it's not something we're ashamed to not carry. It just doesn't fit into our model of business right now. I mean, we really uh, stand by the traditionally made full favored aspects of selling fermented dairy products and milk has a very specific definition to us and how we use that. And it's not to ostracize people's ideas or needs or, um, or food allergies or anything like that. Uh, or yeah. food choices. It's just, this is what we do and this is why we do it. And here's how we define it. And then it allows people to make choices and to find those things. We're happy to also point out where those things are available in the marketplace. Um, because someday down the road, there will be a tradition of these type of fermented products. And we'll have to, as a group, create definitions and terms that we can all stand by. And I can imagine a time that Zingerman's may carry those, those products, but currently it's so new and nebulous and undefined um, that as a, a consumer uh, I'm in, I'm enjoying watching 
things transpire. Although I hope we all in the industry um, really take heed and, and think about how we use the term milk. It seems like they're trying to say that, hey, you're confusing people by calling this almond milk. I'm not confused. I, it's, I, I know exactly what it is. It's not from a cow and it's almond milk. I, I don't Correct. find it confusing at all. What is confusing for, for more people is the, the Greer ruling, which got doubled down on the appeal for the use of the word. So um, it, it just makes, I, I hopefully it gives us in, in our, at the, at, at folks who work at good cheese counters, a chance to, you know, educate their, their guests and have them rediscover what Le Gruyere AOP is versus the generic word now will be Gruyere for just anything that anybody wants to call the, the cheese that reminds them of, of the cheese Gruyere. Um, it's, it's, it's sad that Gruyere or the Le Gruyere AOP don't have this, have the pull to make this word stick in other markets, including the USA. It almost reminds me of when, Prince lost the right to call himself Prince and he had to turn himself into a symbol, (laughs) you know, or something like that. I don't, it's like, it's, you know, but it's like, it's, you get, we get a reaction as cheese people, right? So your, your take, your hot take on that, what's, are you concerned? I think it's a byproduct of the U S and North America, not having a clear Lex, uh, you know, taxonomy for, how we talk about uh, the derivation of our our foods and our food weights. So to not really to not be sense. able to to say, I remember back at ACS in Montreal when Health Canada was trying to to help come up with a taxonomy and a, a way to talk about uh, place and derivation of some of their amazing unique products, and I thought. The U.S. is is going to be just around the bend, and and that's been what, twelve years or something since then. So, it's a, uh, I think it's an unfortunate byproduct of 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 not realizing how many amazing foods we have that are our own, and how to create uniqueness around them, and to not see it as competition, but the the European system uh, for controlling origin and, and denomination is something to be modeled, not something to, to be, you know, deconstructed. Uh, unfortunately, from what I could extrapolate from it, what I, my takeaways is that it's just so politically loaded. There's so much behind it. I mean, it goes back to uh, the time where we might've boycotted cigarettes from France or something or vice versa. Um, and so it's just, there's so much, in, there's so much behind it. And, uh, the, and, and a lot of lobbying, um, but getting into um, and, uh, getting back into this other part of the this, the shop that is Zingerman's, um, the um, during since the pandemic, did you see a boon in the rediscovery or or the expansion of eating more cured meats, uh, more cheese boards per se that folks are now a little more comfortable with chocolate bars, preserved fish. You know, these yeah. categories had a, they were definitely booming during the height of the pandemic. Have, have some of that stuck? You know, that's interesting, right? How do, how do eating habits maintain? So people were eating at home. They were preparing food. They were reading 
food journals uh, and the New York Times food column to see what people were making and how they were making it and then going out to shop. And we were the benefactor of those shopping excursions and learning about tin fish and seafood, learning about different ways of preparing pulses uh, and utilizing products. And so that is still continuing, although we're seeing here in Ann Arbor an uptick uh, in people going back to restaurants. And so it, there's, a bit of, there's a bit of a slowdown. But at the same time, once you have an amazing uh, you know, tinned mackerel from Portugal, it's hard to go back. And then on top of that, you get, you get it at a sale price right now at Zingerman's Mail Order, and it's, uh, it's a good value. That stuff is so healthy too. It's the omegas on that are, are just it's such, such healthy foods for you to eat. Um, so would you say that this category helps supplement the cheese program? Like, is it critical that like you need to be thinking about selling this category if you have a cheese shop just to have a shelf stable item with a good margin on it, takes up a small amount of space, um, a, a lot of value and a small square footage on the counter uh, versus crackers, say, you know, or, or, or potato chips. You know, if you have like sure. three by three feet of chocolate, you could have like $10,000 worth of chocolate and tin fish in like a three by three foot cube. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm serious. That, right? yeah, you yeah. can't have that with potato chips or crackers, right? So if you have a small shop and you don't have tin fish or chocolate and you want to keep selling cheese at a good margin and be competitive, yeah. would you, is, is this part of the, the strategy or are you just putting stuff you love in your store and it's just that simple? Well, our buyers, so we're a little unique in that respect. Um, the, the buyers that buy in certain categories, you see a lot of the, an expression of their own likes and dislikes and the things they bring in. So over time, as we have new buyers, the product mix changes slightly. And that, that keeps it fun. Uh, as far as tin fish and, uh, and seafood, that was a, an old coworker and manager, uh, Bill Marshall who really fell in love with tin fish and, and did a big push on it. Um, tin fish and seafood, much like uh, wine, you could have the same tin sardine over three different vintages, uh, and it's remarkably different. You know, it's an annual crop. Uh, the, the flavors are different. The textures are different every year. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't think you need to have those products with cheese, uh, or to supplement uh, sales or margin, I think it, it for us having traditionally made foods that are full flavored, all of our products go through that filter, um, and it's it's reflected in our selections. You know, we can't have everything, uh, and and things amazing cheeses that you find elsewhere you won't find at Zingerman's because you can find them elsewhere, and that's. That's really important to acknowledge. We're either going to provide a service to the guest that walks through the door, or we're going to provide a, a unique product they can't get elsewhere. I love that. And do you, is there a trend that you're predicting to happen or that you miss? Like, like, like this was a, to me, a pandemic trend, uh, but, but do you, do you see one happening or is there one you miss from the, from the first time you stepped foot in Zingerman's 15, 20 years ago, or actually it's more than 20 years ago. Um, oh man. With a nice break know, in between, with a nice break yeah, in between. Nice break in between. Yeah. But you know, what's, what's in your crystal ball or what do you miss that you might be able to bring, bring back and relaunch? Is there anything that comes to mind? 
Well, the thing that kept us back then, the thing that was so unique was um, we really had a foothold on importing unique products that you couldn't find elsewhere, whether it be olive oil or vinegar, not so much cheeses and meats per se. Um, we used uh, really good relationships with the di distribution chain for that. But those were the things that were eye-opening to me coming out of kitchens and making inexpensive food look, look uh, acceptable on a plate was to take these amazing, unique individual ingredients that you can't find elsewhere and to combine them into something really uh, exceptional. And that's, that, for me, was amazing. The other things back then that were so unique were the deli was in a smaller footprint. We've done a big expansion. And uh, whether it's time or a little bit of uh, haze, the smells and the energy in the, the space before was different. Not better or worse, just unique to that moment. Uh, and so now the, the bacon comes out of the oven in a different spot. And so in the morning, it smells different. Uh, yeah, the sounds are different. The acoustics, wow. all those fun things. Those are some cool things to, 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 to kind of think about. It's not just so yeah. so simple. The way you're describing it, uh, you're kind of painting a picture. So, so is there a new product or is there a feature coming up? I read your, you know, you, you part of Zingerman's tours. So is, is that something that's new or you're, you're part of that's a new thing for you or anything you want to mention that's coming up? That's exciting. As far as new products, uh, I have a domestic cheese buyer, Scott Evans, and he's bringing in a lot of fun uh, cheeses from the U.S. Uh, and that's been fantastic for me to learn as well. I tend to stick to the imported cheeses. Um, so keep an eye out on our website for all the fun things he's finding and working with our, our domestic producers. Uh, and food tours. So Zingerman's food tours came out of one of our uh, specialty foods managers uh, was married to a woman from Spain. And we were already traveling and importing foods. And so Ari had the idea of why not allow people to come with us as we visit producers. Uh, and the first food tour was in Spain. And so they visited cheese producers and ham producers and olive oil producers, et cetera. Uh, and they put together the tour on their own. Uh, I'm sure there was an, an insurance nightmare to do that. But now, uh, in this day and age, our food tours business has evolved. Uh, and we have a, a owner operator. So the way Ari and Paul grew, instead of franchising the deli, they uh, created a parent company and they own half of each business that comes out of Zingerman's organization with an operator owner or multiple operator owners that get to share in the upsides and downsides of running, running a business. And Christy, the amazing uh, Christy runs our food tours company right now. She's actually in Morocco leading a food tour currently. Uh, and you can check those out at zingermansfoodtours.com. But they, uh, these tours bring people all over, uh, primarily Europe, but they connect a lot of our food producers, uh, and Christy really is into wine. And so we do a lot with wine and create experiences that people wouldn't normally get to do on a, on a traditional vacation. What's your role in that? So there are multiple, uh, tour partners. Christy can't go on all of them. And so there are select staff, uh, around our businesses that 
get to, to help lead these tours. And so I've been fortunate enough to lead some to Sicily uh, and I look forward to leading more. These places have just drenched in history. I'm so happy to hear that they're, that the U.S. cheeses are, are still a fabric of, of the counter. And uh, will, there, will there be tours for, for anything U.S. related in that sense, um, where you can visit a bunch of dairies or more, more focused on Europe for now, I guess? It's a great question. No, no. Domestic tours, uh, we don't do a lot of. Um, but I think that there's a big area of opportunity there whether it's a three-day or four-day tour, if you think about people our age traveling, we don't have nine days, 12 days to, to go over to Europe and totally soak it in. It'd be great if we could, but that's not the reality. So how do people like us get to go on a, a really cool tour, fly into some, you know, to the, the Southeast and stay somewhere amazing and get to work with a handful of producers in a region and get back home in a reasonable amount of time. I think that's there's a big area of opportunity there. I, I love the idea of it. I love the idea of it. I, I mean, I just want to come to Michigan and visit. I mean, it, to me, it's one of the most beautiful states. It's it's a totally uh, immersive four season state uh, between all the, the the hilly regions and the lakes. What is what's your favorite seasonal activity, non work, and and why? I wanted to ask you this earlier, but I'll ask it now. Oh man, yeah, I'm I'm a Michigander. I was born and raised here and I love the fall and the winter time. And I love being outside. We're, we're inside, you know, so many hours of our lives when we do this type of work. Uh, and I, I love just to get out, whether it be on a bike or in the woods uh, or hanging out with dogs or whatever it may be uh, just to be in nature. And we're lucky enough to have a lot of that in Michigan, whether it be in the upper peninsula or the lower. Yeah, it's God's country up in the Upper Peninsula. I mean, the whole place. I mean, uh, just the, each lake is so different looking, um, different colors, different surroundings. Some are in wooded areas. Some are open like ocean ocean beaches. I was just blown away by that when I visited uh, Michigan years ago, and I, I'm well overdue for a visit. And what do you normally have in your backpack when you're cycling? What's your favorite snack? Is it is it something like a Kit Kat? Like if you're like me, do you have a little something that's a little low brown and something a little fancy, or is it always going to be something right off the uh, counters at Zingerman's? I'm a I'm a food enthusiast, not a snob. So low brow to me is fantastic. No, I. Uh... I, I tend to, to roll with whatever is in the fridge. It might be some Gorp or it might be a... Wait, Gorp? What is that? What's oh, Gorp? The, the, that's the bicycle. Uh... It's uh, raisins and nuts and M&Ms. You know, we, we grew up calling it Gorp. Just whatever is, whatever is available in the fridge. I love yeah. pears. I love fruit. Just get out and go. Just that's get out it. and go. Uh, a, a hunk of cheese goes a long way to, to making people happy. You could pack a hunk of cheese and go biking with some gorp. I mean, that's what we all need to be doing. Um, and Sean, I just want to say thank you for being on the show. It's so great to, to talk this way with you. I don't see you enough and uh, or talk to you enough. So thank you. And hopefully we help uh, we helped some cheesemongers out there feed all our cheesy fans' souls. And then we got s- some uh, new thoughts out into the airwaves. Yeah. It's a pleasure of mine. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And anyone who wants to uh, to connect with me, please do. We'd love to to have you come spend a day at the deli and, and check out the counter with us. So come back anytime, Sean. 
And everyone listening, you could follow Sean and his fine work at Zingerman's Deli on Instagram at, at Zingerman's Deli. Plus, you can follow us on Instagram at Cutting the Curd, and you can follow me at Sting Chef. Please listen and subscribe to Cutting the Curd via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, some friendly reminders. The ACS scholarships are open for application, so please visit cheesesociety.org backslash scholarship if you're interested in applying for scholarships to this year's conference. And the DZTA and DZRA application season is beginning now. Please visit dzte.org for the application packets. And lastly, the 2023 applications are now open for the Ann Saxelby Legacy Fund for a fully funded month-long summer 2023 apprenticeship on the farm. To learn more, go to www.annsaxelbylegacyfund.org before March 15th to submit your application. Thanks again, everyone. And if you love someone, send them cheese. is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.